Someone has said that if you ask good questions, you'll get good answers. If you ask good questions, the decisions that you make are become abundantly easier if you ask good questions. The good, whole thing about good questions is a very important part of life. Is this the person I'm supposed to marry? That's a good question to ask. Is this the job I'm supposed to take? Good question to ask. Lots of good questions that we could be uh, we can be drawing from out there. Um, a book that uh, uh, we read as a pastoral team. Many of y'all have read it. It's a business uh, kind of a leadership book. Liz Wiseman's book, uh, The Multiplier Effect. It says this: the number one difference between a Nobel uh, Prize winner and others is not IQ or work ethic, but says so they ask big questions. Big questions. What's some big questions that we could ask today that we can ask of our faith? If you think about a lawyer, a lawyer makes his money, he makes his money, her money off of asking good questions in a trial situation, asking penetrating questions, questions that get at truth. If you go to a counselor, a counselor asks good questions in, in the sense of trying to bring your marriage or your life back together out of the wounds, out of the muck and the mire of life. If you have a good teacher in the sense that they know how to ask good questions, okay? Uh, sometimes they're not so entertaining. Maybe they're, they're not your favorite subject, but if they ask good questions, then they will help you to understand. And then when you take the test, it's helpful when they ask understandable questions. Again, questions are so much a part of our life. They make us, they break us, they, they advance us, or, or, or they actually speak truth to us when we don't want to hear the truth. Because there's sometimes we ask the questions, but we don't want to hear the answer on the other side. So we don't ask that question. That's a sure sign that you probably need to ask that question. Uh, you need to dive in behind the scenes. We're in a series about asking questions. We're about asking questions about why we exist. We've been going at this for 15 years. Uh, I know that that's not, not, maybe not all of you have been going at this for 15 years, but it was 15 years ago that 9-11 happened, and one month, less than a month later, we launched Grace Point Church. Wasn't, it wasn't in our plan. We'd already had it planned and working towards that. It just so happened that right in the middle of our pre-launch period uh, was 9-11. And it was a it was a it was a page turner for everyone, as you know, and a faith checking point for everyone. And we need those those times in our life when we have to kind of dive in and check our faith. And nine eleven did that for a lot of people. I don't know when you're making if you're making some big decisions right now, or you're about to make some big decisions, then you need to be diving into some good questions. Uh, I want to encourage you. Uh, I want, I'm going to mention it. Randy's going to tell you how at the end of the service. Again, Experiencing God Bible Studies are launching right now. Okay, we've got some women's launching right now. We got Most of them will be launching the 1st of, uh, of October. But this is absolutely, hands down, the best Bible study I've ever done. I've done it about five times, and I can't get enough of it, okay? So I thought it will lead the whole church through it because it asks questions. It asks us the questions of how do we know and do the will of God? Okay, and we'll kind of break into, into that a lot more next week and in the weeks ahead, building up to the first week in October. But the question that we've been dealing with or we dealt with last week is, are we there yet? After 15 years of driving this school bus, we should be there, right? We should be there by now as a church. Have we arrived? What are we arriving at? You, and you don't know if you're there yet if you don't know where there is. And so there, it comes a defining point in our lives that we've got to define what is there so that we can aim at it. Okay, so where is there? There is that we would be an authentic church for those who've given up on the church but haven't given up on God. In summary, we'd be a church for the unchurched. 
That's what we said 15 years ago. That's what we still say today. But have we seen that happen? Are we there yet? That's the penetrating question. And I mentioned to you last week that I actually had uh, my assistant go back and go through all of our North Points as far back as we could pull up data on and, and, and to find out, are we there yet? And the answer is that well, one in three of, of those who become part of Grace Point Church, and we're about to have our next North Point class, um, those who go through that class and become part of our church and sign on, go from being a consumer to being a, a contributor, from a, an attender to being a member, those, those uh, only one in three were unchurched. So we're, we're not there yet. I wish we were there. We're on our way to being there. I, I think in, we, we've got some work to do. And, and that's, the, that's the thing about questions is the questions get at some real hard issues. If you're going to be a church for the unchurched, then that means that we're going to have to literally think about everything that we do. Are we sensitive to those who are outside of the faith, those who are not yet followers of Christ. Oh, they're really close. They kind of consider themselves kind of in that ballpark, but they haven't crossed the line. They haven't taken that step. And that's a, that's a big step to take and you don't take it lightly. And it shouldn't be one of those that you wonder, have I ever taken that step or not? Listen, you should know if you are a follower of Christ, the world around you should know that you are a follower of Christ. But here's the cool thing. If we will be a church that will be sensitive to the, to the unbelievers around us, to those not yet in church, those not a part of a church, those not a part of Christ and all that kind of stuff, we can see some pretty incredible things happen. And this is why we really invite and welcome you to belong even before you believe. Because you can belong to part of Grace Point in every sense of the way, in every sense of the word, or belonging just about in every sense without believing. Because we believe as you're here and as you experience and as you have community with and as you hang out with and as you get to know others, you're going to see a difference, I pray, in those who are followers of Christ. And those who are not. This is the way Paul put it in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I know it's out of the message, but it really puts it into our language today. He says, but if some unbelieving outsiders walk in on a service, just imagine it, unbelievers outside walk in today. Because for some of them on the outside, I can tell you right now, if you're your first time here today and you haven't been in church in a long time, you're probably kind of nervous. And no, I'm not going to call you up. No, we're not going to embarrass you in any sense because we're sensitive to that. But some people on the outside, and I say outside, they're not really a part of coming and being a part and belonging. They look at a building without windows. Like, why would I go into that dark room? There's a scare factor in there. We've got to bring that down. So what if they, one believer walks in from the outside into a service where people are speaking out God's truth? The plain words will bring them up against the truth and probe their hearts. Before you know it, they're going to be on their faces before God, recognizing what God, that God is among you. That is what I want unbelievers to say about us. That as hey, I went to Grace Point, and hey, there was a message, there was a story, there was somebody who shared their story, there was, there was something that happened, there was a song, there was a prayer, or I just ran into somebody out there and they just embraced me. They just made me feel so well. All of a sudden, it probed into my life and I felt as if God was on me and I was the only one in the room. As if he was talking directly to me. That's not me in some magical pixie dust. That is the Spirit of God 
working in our lives. This is what I realize about worship. Worship is so critical. And what does this worship experience mean? When we will grow deeper through personal worship, you should be worshiping every day of your life. I know those of you, it's about deer season and you're already thinking, I can worship in a deer stand. You know, I get it. You take your Bible to the deer stand and you can worship in your deer stand. It's important that you have personal time worship. You don't have to be here to worship, but I'll tell you this, you will grow deeper through personal worship, but you'll grow broader through congregational worship. This band, a story, a testimony, meeting someone else, you encouraging someone this week, and I encourage you next week, you make connections with people, all of a sudden your life is impacted in incredible ways. See, we exist. We believe that this whole worship word concept is so important that we say one of the reasons that we exist is to promote authentic worship of God. Simple sentence, there it is. We exist to promote authentic. Now, promote, let's break it down. Promote is something that that we're just going to try to encourage. We're going to try to foster. We're going to try to build up an environment. We're going to try to put things together. We're going to orchestrate it to a point, but we're going to have to put it out there to you. We can only promote authentic. I'm going to be real. Are you going to be real? I'm going to let my guard down. I'll tell you about my mistakes. Are you going to tell me about yours? Let's not be fakes. No posers allowed. In fact, we should put it on the door out there. No posers, fakes allowed. All right? Come in here broken. Come in here marred. Come in here wounded. Hey, we're all a bunch of crackpots anyway. Let's just do it. So if we would embrace that, that's authenticity. Let's come in here broken, incomplete as we are, and let's worship. What's that word about? It's bringing worship, bringing honor, bringing recognition, lifting up high God. Here's the, re- here's the reality. The Barnabas says, hey, we've got to ask this question, are we worshiping? Are we doing this? Barna did a study. Again, I always go back to studies. Ask a lot of Americans across the country a couple of, year, a couple of decades ago nearly and found out that most people, 32% of people who regularly attend church never experienced God in worship. 44% hadn't experienced God in worship in the last year. Now, hold on to that for a minute. I mean, you come to church regularly and you haven't experienced God? The past year you haven't? I go, okay. Now, it's not all on the stage, guys. It's not all on me and the message. It's not on the lights, the camera, and the actions. It's, it's on us at the point we can promote it, but we can't make it happen. So who's, what is this? And see, the reality is, is that I think we have such a jaded view of what worship is. It's so subjective that, you know, what you might call worship, well, it wasn't loud enough, or, or it was too loud, or, or it, they didn't sing any of the good old hymns of the faith, or, or they sang all that new stuff, that rock and roll music, and, you know, or, or they didn't speak in tongues. Are there too many people raising their hands? There weren't enough people raising their hands. There weren't enough tears. We can all measure our kind of work. Let's stop it. What's worship? Have we experienced God? In worship, let's 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 let let's let the scriptures. Let's go from subjective to objective. Now, let's take your Bibles and open to the Book of Isaiah, chapter six. And I want us to 
understand worship in light of a worship experience and kind of let that be a template that from now on for the rest of your life, I pray you will remember this template and measure what worship is. Have I worship not based on did I feel something? Did, did it tickle my fancy? Did I have sweaty palms? Did I cry? Or there are a lot of people raising their hands, whatever it is, your barometer for indicating. Let's, let's, let's dive into a guy's life who's going through crisis. It's a time of national mourning, if you will. Now, it wasn't the mourning that we experienced 15 years ago because 3,000 people died and were killed. It's because one person died. A guy's name is Uzziah. That doesn't mean much to you. Isaiah was a young, up-and-coming prophet in that day. Came from a wealthy family. Isaiah becomes one of the greatest prophets alive and a lot of it ties back to this experience that we're going to unpack today. He becomes a, a prophet that survives over four monarchs, Uzziah, Jotham, uh, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So he's got this broad uh, influence that he has. But let's talk about King Uzziah because that's a big, pretty big deal in the story. It happens about the 8th century B.C., all kinds of dates and eight, uh, dates out there over the, over the course of about 10 to 20, 20 different years that I, that I saw. So let's just say 8th century B.C. And it was this guy named Uz, Uzziah who had been king since he was 16. He was still popping pimples. And he was the king. At 16. But not only that, is he remains king for a very long time, all a sum total of 52 years. Now, we have no concept of that length of span of a, of a ru- ruler or a leader or a president or a king. We have no, no sense of idea of that. But if we were to put it into American terms, we would have to go all the way back to JFK. And if JFK was president and all the way to the, to, to the president, that would be about the length of time that Uzziah was the ruler. So you'd go JFK, LBJ, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, uh, Obama. You, you, you got them all right there. That's Uzziah's span. So you, you talk about influence a nation. You talk about shaping a nation. You talk about, yes. And now that, why is the context? Why is this so important? Because it fits. It fits who we are. It fits where we're at right now. So look at verse 1. It's how it gives us the context. In the year that King Uzziah died. This is a time of national mourning. But I want want to bring it to you personally. Because as Isaiah is grieving the loss of his security, he's grieving the loss of his ruler, he's grieving the loss of his known kingdom, he's grieving the loss of his king, he's he's grieving this loss, he's going through this loss How can he ever think about the things of God? And some of y'all today in this room, right now, you're grieving the loss, the loss of a dream. You thought your marriage was going to be this way, and it's not. You're you're grieving the loss of a a family member who's died. This this year, the past 12 months, you you have been a part of remembering their life. Some of y'all, years ago, maybe, gave birth to a stillborn child and you're still grieving the loss of that child. Some of y'all are grieving the loss of a dream of a job when you didn't get picked 
and somebody else did. They never called you back. I'm not going to say any one of those is greater in pain than the other. I'll just say this. They all stink. They all hurt. And here's what happens. We are in this moment of time when we have this deep pain and this deep hurt, but it's in those times of grieving and loss and suffering that things didn't work out like we thought they were going to work out, that it is in those times that God can show up and do this incredible thing, drawing us into worship, changing everything about us. It's kind of like our life is like this. This is a mirror I picked up in Casablanca, uh, Morocco. So it's got this etching. It's got all this pretty little finery around it. I don't know finery, what do I, what do I know about it. It's just kind of decorative, okay? I, I couldn't sell for QB or whatever that television is. But it's got, it's got a mirror in it, okay? And I'm blinding some of y'all right now with this mirror. But what, what happens is though is we look at life like this. This is how we see life. Everywhere we turn, we see ourselves. I can't run from myself. I'm always looking at myself. Sometimes I don't like what I see, but I'm stuck with myself. (laughs) Have you ever tried to get away from yourself? It's really hard. Uh, And this is all I see. And all, all, all along, though, there's another part to this story. There is, there's God. And though life is real and life will always be in front of us, what if What if God was not just in the back where we just saw a sliver of God, a little bit of God, and we just needed God on Sunday, we just need God when we're in trouble, you know, we we go to God then, but what if actually God were on the front? Would it change anything on this? Mm, Not literally maybe, but maybe the way we see things. If God becomes the filter through which we see life, what would that change? How would that change our worldview? How would that change our attitude? If we saw life like this, this being God, this being us, instead of God being back here and, oh, I have a little bit of God in my life, but no, I have God up front here. He is the big picture. He is what I see life through. That's what we want to see. And what happens on this day of grieving is you find this very thing happening with Isaiah. He's in a state of mourning. In the year of King Uzziah, uh, King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord. Let's read on. Sitting up on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him, you know, talk, all of a sudden, now King Uzziah is off the table. Now all of a sudden, this is appearance of God, and God's in front of him, and he says, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim, and they had six wings. And what's this creature seraphim? And the two were covered his face, and with two they covered his feet, and with two he flew. And they, they called to one another, and they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. What? You talk about seeing things differently and and, and visual. See, real life, when real life happens, misadjustments and misfortunes, they can actually catalyze authentic, passionate worship in us. Whenever real life hits us and we see God through it, God can actually use that horrible, no good experience to change everything about how we see life and deal with life. They're almost like epiphanies. 
And from the life of Isaiah, I want to look at three epiphanies that he has in this time of mourning death to seeing God. Okay, let's look at these epiphanies. Number one epiphany is this epiphany of adoration. He begins to see God for who he is. When all of a sudden, God is not just the edging around the frame of your life. He's not just in the corners of your life, but he's actually in the front of your life and you're seeing him full on before you see anything else. You're seeing a big God. You're seeing a God who can handle what you can't handle. You're seeing a God who can step into your situation and all of a sudden things can begin to change from our perspective. Then here Isaiah sees these seraphim. Who are they? These angels called seraphim, it means fiery. They were these holy creatures that gathered around the throne and they were worshiping him. They show us what worship is. We learn it from the angels. Now, let me say this. Let me put this disclaimer on there. There's a whole lot of bad angel theology out there. When I was getting ready to write my book, I had talked to a publisher and he said, listen, I'll, I'll, I'll entertain any book you want to write outside of heaven and angels. He says the market is saturated with those and a lot of it's bad theology. A lot of this angelology that's out there that you have your little personal angel and your little angel and you're talking to your little angel. Listen, When I study the scripture, when I look at the angels, when I look at the birth story of Jesus, when I look at Isaiah chapter 6, they're all not focused on you. They're focused on God. And the angelology of this world, of which I've experienced, is a demonic world. My first encounter with a a demonic person was when I was a senior in high school. I'd been called to ministry. There was a person in, in my high school class that had been struggling with demonism. And they came to me. I was a 12th grader. What would I know? Anyway, we enter into this conversation and it was about this little angel that was, that was talking to her and how she gave her berries and how they wrote letters. And, and, and I was like, it was above my pay grade as a 12th grader. And, uh, and I'm like, okay, so I'm diving into everybody, every, theo- every theologian, my pastor, I'm getting ad- advice and, and they just kept pushing me. You go take care of it. And, um, and so... I did, because they knew me. She trusted me. So she stayed, and we continued to talk, and we continued to work through it. But then this demon started writing me letters. And I kept these letters for a while until I felt oppressed with them even around me. I took them, and I had them burned. I wasn't even home, but I was so oppressed. I told my younger brother, I said, you don't even need to know what this is. There's a shoebox in the top of my closet. You need to go get them, take them in the backyard, and you need to burn it now. Don't ask questions. Don't open it up. Just burn them. I needed to get those things out of, they weren't preaching points, illustrations for somewhere down the road. They were just needed to get out of there. See, what happened is there was this angel of light that looked so good and was feeding her berries, but really it was drawing her away. When you look at the scriptural versions of angels, when you look at this book and you get your angelology from this, you'll find that every time there's an angel, they're pointing them to God. They're pointing them to Jesus. If your angel's not pointing you to Jesus, you need to get away from that angel. Verse 2 says it like this, Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, the two were covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. Notice this, two has six, two covered his face, two covered his feet, two, two he flew. Everything about this person from head to toe, this angel head to toe, was about worshiping God. Everything. With two, he covered his face. Even 
The scripture says that no man has seen the face of God. It is so great. It is so glorious. It is so amazing. You could not see the face of God and live. So they covered their face. With two, they covered his feet. Because that part from the waist down had to be covered. If you realize, even with, with there was there's something holy and unholy about the feet at the same time. Even Moses, when he was standing before God, had to take off his shoes. So there's this, this holy, unholy element there from head to toe. And with two, he flew. So even two of his wings were used to serve. He would fly and he would serve. And we'll see that later on in this passage. But here's what I really want you to get away from this is that the angels praise God not only with their lives, their lives head to toe, but also with their lips, with their lips. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God. It's in in Psalm chapter 19. But when you look at uh, Isaiah, what did the angel say? These are the first words that are spoken from heaven. God didn't say a word in this in this passage until the very end. The angels are the first to speak, and what do they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, again, I think what we've done is we've relegated worship to this band singing some cool songs. I want you to note, in this worship experience, there's no singing going on. They didn't sing a single song. All right, they didn't sing one time. But the words that are being spoken, even coming from the lips, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Why, why the repetition? Why the three-time repetition? Because in the Bible writing time, in the ancient Hebrew language, they didn't have underscores. They didn't have bold prints. They didn't have a different font. They didn't have a highlighter. So what you would do if you wanted to emphasize something, we see this in Jeremiah and Ezekiel in different, different situations, but they would say something three times. God is holy. No, no, no. You don't get it. He's holy, holy. No. It's not enough. He's holy. 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 In case you haven't seen it, the whole earth is full of the glory of God. But what we do is we see this much of God And we see the rest of our life when we need to see this and we see our life through God. Oh, that God is holy. It's the most most powerful, the most descriptive attribute of God. I think it's the, the most important attribute of God. It's the attribute of God in which everything else center pivots around. It's the only attribute of God that's mentioned three times in three time repetition. Love. God is not love, love, love. He is not forgiving, forgiving, forgiving. But guess what? His love is based on His holiness. His, uh, his forgiveness is based on His holiness. His justice is based on His holiness. If you get the holiness of God right and allow it to change you, to affect your life, you'll get everything else about God. Everything else comes out of that. The words of the angels were singing in that corporate worship gathering in in the sky where Isaiah was a visitor. He was a guest on that day. They were singing holy. They were saying holy, holy, holy. Listen, I hope that every week when you come here, you bring adoration to God. You experience adoration of God. You experience God in a real way that, 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 that touches you. 
that moves you emotionally, but it's not to move you emotionally. It's to move you deeper into Him and to understand who He is. Weekly worship is the highest corporate act of the body of Christ. It is the visible demonstration of priority one to us and our church. We must pray over it, labor over it, and shape it. We must make our building right for it to worship as well as we can, undistracted, inspired, and uplifted. We must center all our church schedule and your schedule, personal schedules around it. No individual will linger outside chatting. It's the priority of priority one. It's the creme de la creme. I would hope that being here, you would encounter a broader worship Deeper worship, yes, day to day in your life, but a broader worship. Listen, if, if you don't like this, you're not going to like heaven. Because when you look at heaven, you see almost a carbon copy of this. Revelation chapter 4 says it like this. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. Does that sound familiar? And was covered with the eyes. So here we got Isaiah 700, 800 years before Christ. Now we have 100 years after Christ, Revelation. We have John seeing a vision into heaven. So you can go for the span now of several hundred years, centuries now, and they're seeing the same thing in heaven. This is what heaven's going to look like. And there's six wings, and it was covered with the eyes, and all around, even under its wings, day and night. All day long. They couldn't stop saying, say it with me. I want you to read the rest with me. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. You are worthy, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and they exist because Don't you hear that last phrase? You created what you pleased. I don't know if you realize this, but God made you and you and you and you because He wanted you. He was pleased to create you. And in His pleasure of creating you, He made you where you would worship Him. Because he's worthy. I hope to God that every day you will wake up and you will experience a deeper walk with God because you will see him more clearly. And I hope every day that you live, you will see life through the lens of God, not God through the lens of your life. Adoration leads to revelation. So here is Isaiah as he sees this experience of worship with the angels and God. And then we come to verse 4 and 5. Now I cannot skip over this. Please listen carefully and quickly. And the foundations of the threshold shook. You think we had a bad earthquake last weekend. Uh, here's, Here's a legit earthquake. As the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. First time we hear from Isaiah's lips, 
He has been stunned. He's been speechless. He's been watching all this unfold. And now the very first words are the words of a prophet. This is what a prophet would say. You go through the Old Testament, look at the woe oracles of all the prophets. They would all say, woe on the nation, woe on you, woe on the, you've got to repent, oh, woe, woe, woe. Now, this is time, it's himself. Woe is me. See, what happens when you encounter God in worship, you will get your finger, your pointing little finger off of pointing at other people's sins and shortcomings, and you'll all of a sudden start seeing yourself in a whole new light. The critical spirit will drop down, analyzing all things about the worship service, the preacher, whether or not he should be wearing jeans or a T-shirt up here, and, all, and the band, and they're too loud, the too soft. All that stuff just drops down because all of a sudden you say, woe is me. Woe is me. I'm not measuring up, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. Notice how specific he gets. A two-by-two area of his life was dirty. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What caused him to worship was seeing God. When he saw God, he saw who God was, and he saw himself in light of God. Instead of us doing what we do so many times and saying, you and you don't measure up to me, and so therefore I'm more holy than you. No, real worship happens when I see God, and God's revelation of himself reveals deep into me who I am not. I'm not there. I'm dirty. I'm not what I ought to be. See, what I say, we exist to promote authentic worship. This is where authenticity comes in. I have to be real with me, hear what I'm saying, with me, about me. I have to be real with me, about me. I'm messed up. I'm not right. I need God to make me right. There's some people in this room, man, it's not their lips, it's their eyes. They cannot keep them eye, their eyes they did belong. For some, it's their ears. For others, it's their hands. They've got their hands in things right now that they knew that if their hand got caught in that thing, it'd lose their job. It may lose their marriage. Their feet are taking them to places they shouldn't be going. Their attitude stinks. Their attitude is the, pre, the pre-man that gets there before anybody else. There's so much about of us. So some people are really good at making money. They're really good at making money. But the, but, but the thing is, is their money has made them now and controls them. And it's not, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. It's, woe is me, I'm a man of a dirty wallet. I'm a man of a hoarding wallet. I'm a man of dirty hands. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a woman of a, of a sour attitude. I'm an unforgiving person, whatever it is. Now, I want you to see the specificity. I will never get this out of my mouth, but you're going to get, uh, figure it out. Specificity of it, okay? Unclean lips. What are you seeing about God that he is pointing out to something in your life. And I'll tell you this. This is just true of me. It may not be true of you, but I, I, I dare say it is. I have never encountered God in personal or corporate worship that He hasn't shown me something more about Him and something about me that needed to change. 
something about me that needed to change. Something about me that needed to change. And it's not God guilting us. It's God convicting us. It's not God shaming us. It's God bringing us in order with his life, which leads me to number three. The third epiphany is transformation. When I'm hearing and becoming all that God desires. So it wasn't as if, you know, Isaiah says, woe is me, and I'm dirty, my lips are dirty, I've been, you know, I've been speaking wrong, or whatever, whatever he was, I've been using foul language, I don't know why his lips were dirty, I've been gossiping, I don't know, I've been misusing my gifts, I don't know what, what it was that was making his lips dirty. But then you see verse 6, and you see this beautiful thing happen. And one of the seraphim flew, remember they had two wings to fly with, and having in his hand a burning coal, he had taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth. And so he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Please wake yourself up and hear what I'm about to say. Whatever dirty, wrong, foul is in your life because you maybe today have seen the holiness of God in a whole new way and you're not measuring up, okay? And he's pointing that area out of your out in your life. I want you to see the beauty of redemption, the beauty of grace, the beauty and the power of God that God, when he confessed the sin of his lips, God went and cleansed the sin of his lips, that God purified the sin of his lips. He went specific to specific. He went right to the source of the problem and he cleansed it. Now, the beautiful thing is, is it doesn't end there. So you take, if take for example, today, let's say, for example, you maybe have lost your character because you've lost your job, you did some bad business dealings, and all of a sudden now nobody can trust you. Guess what? You bring that to God, let God redeem it, and let God rebuild your life in that. You, you, you've cheated, you've failed your a relationship or something. That, that's an area of brokenness. I know somebody in our church who's been sober for 30 years still goes to AA. And is helping to redeem, God is redeeming that broken part of his life from 30 years ago to help other people out of their brokenness. God can take that dirty, rotten, mouth attitude, whatever it is, and he can use it for his glory because he turns right around. He says, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. Many people that read Isaiah 6 point to Isaiah 6 as being the calling of Isaiah's life as into a prophet ministry. And I want you to see this because it's worth you getting out of bed and coming today. The area of foul, raunch, stench, sin, of Isaiah's life when he brought it to God in humility and humbly confessed it. That was the area that God purified and that would later be the area that God would redeem and use for his glory. Isaiah's lips would become the lips of a prophet instead of the lips of a servant of Satan. Is there an area of your life that God is pointing to right now 
and saying, this is unclean. What could God do? If you had authentic worship experience with Him, where you saw Him for who He is, you for who you're not, and let Him bring His healing and redemption together to make you what you were designed to be in the very beginning. If there is any single passage that I have shared from, from the Old Testament more than Isaiah 6 over the 25 years that I've been doing what I'm doing right here, I can't think of it. Because I am constantly going back to it and saying, Mike, where are you unclean? Where do you need to be made right? Where is God going to use that dirty part, broken part of your life for His glory? And I can take you back to the place. I can't take you to the exact place because I can't remember. It was in Israel when I was a sophomore in, in college. I went to Israel, roomed with my professor, roomed with a, another student who's a little older than me. And as an introvert, I prized my time to myself. And we had one free afternoon, and the professor and my other roommate, they left and they went out and they saw the town, and I stayed in the room. And I opened up my Bible to Isaiah 6. And I read it. And God came all over me at that point. And I had my face in that dirty carpet of that hotel room, buried in tears flowing. Not out of shame, but out of guilt and repentance and redemption. I don't know where you're at right now, but you know what real worship looks like? Because the word worship comes from the word worth. And if this is all I'm seeing, this is the only thing of value to me. It's the only thing in front of me. But when I see life through a lens called God, and I live my life through this lens, all of a sudden, it doesn't always change all the problems over here, but it does help me live the life that He wants me to live. That's when I'm living a life of worship. Would you pray with me? What area in your life right now is God pointing to and is saying, this isn't right? You've been holding on to anger. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's a particular attitude. Let's stick with anger. You're unwilling to forgive and let go of that that happened to you, be it 10 years ago or two decades ago. And you say, but that other person wronged me. I get it. But you're the one holding on to the anger. And that anger has got to be confessed. It's got to be brought to God. Let God redeem that broken situation in your life. We're all a bunch of crackpots. Father God, you know our hearts, whether it's jealousy or it's anger or it's envy or it's lust, whether it's our lips, Lord, oh, the tongue. <laughs> James said, who can tame the tongue? We've all said things, maybe some of us even in, in the car on the way to church today to the family that we need to repent of. We need to bring to you. Lord, I pray that you would be so real in this room right now 
that we wouldn't miss you, that we wouldn't look past you. We wouldn't just see a corner of you out of the corner of our eyes, but you would be everything that we're looking at, everything that we're focused on. It is you. Lord, I thank you for this time, and I just pray that you would do a work in us in a very real and special way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.